This is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Wherever you find us, whether it's a video or podcast on your favorite platform, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. You can also find us on major social media platforms. If you go to MiamiGhostChronicles.com, you can find links to the videos or MP3 files, which you can download and enjoy without commercial interruptions. If you're into classic horror, ghost, and adventure stories, I narrate Nightshade Diary, and you can find links at NightshadeDiary.com. If scary stories are your bag, and listening to encounters with cryptids, ghosts, dogmen, and other weird creatures sends a shiver up your spine, then go to SupernaturalStoryTime.com for links to our weekly podcasts. Noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird can be found at eerie.news or visit the Stranger Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Please subscribe to my newsletter on Substack. Just go to mppelliser.com for a link. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi, everybody. It's Marlene with Stories of the Supernatural. How's everybody doing? Good, I hope. Everything is good here. Nothing new to say in uh, Chicken Kingdom here. You know, sometimes, what do they say? No news is good news. I haven't lost any of them. Even though I have one that I think she's on the way out. She's a, a hen that I've had. I bought her. In other words, this was one of my original, original ones. And when I bought her, she, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure how old she was, but she's doing one of these laying there and one of the worst signs for anybody that has animals that I know that are going to say we get it is when animals stop eating you know when you get an animal and they're sick and you're treating them but they eat something you're okay you're you've got a chance but when they stop eating and I have a feeling this this red hen yeah and she's a good girl but I think her days are numbered because she's not eating but besides but it's expected anybody has animals especially poultry it happens (laughs) so yeah but you know I've got I've got others you know what they say other ovens and the other other eggs that are cooking so yeah and um and i have a neighbor see i have, I have a neighbor on the other side he's got some free range and he was telling me the other day we finally met you know we well we had met before but we we crossed paths and he's talking he says out oh, there's a fox out here somewhere roaming around that took like three of his chickens and i was like ah oh, i think that's what dug under my crate so yes now that I've done my chicken diary thing, uh, let me remind you all, go and sign up for my newsletter on Substack. Go to MiamiGhostChronicles.com. You're going to find links there, not only to sign up for the newsletter where I announce everything having to do with the uh, with writing projects, articles. I just announced I'm starting production on season 13 of Stories of the Supernatural, which runs from January to June of 2023. Okay. So if you know of anybody that's interested, that I'm, I would love to interview, doesn't have to be famous, nothing like that. Anybody that's just had a weird experience, tell them to reach out to me and we could set something up and I can include them in season 13. Um, also, I want to mention my sponsor, plantostaysafe.com. Plantostaysafe.com. They've got a lot of neat, neat and weird things that are practical. You need a travel alarm, something to hang on your doorknob while you're traveling in a hotel room. It wouldn't be the first time I've heard of people having visitors, unexpected visitors, come into their hotel room. It sets off an alarm. 
they've got stuff with hidden cameras, stuff like you can hang it. Or if you have like, you want a nanny cam, like but very, very basic. They even have ones that they've got the camera in the docking station of a phone. A lot of neat, like spice stuff, but yeah, very practical if that's what you really want. And they've also got a great line of self-defense products for women, a bunch of stuff. Okay, so check them out, plantostaysafe.com. Now, let's get on to the good part. The good part is who is a guest with us today. This is a gentleman who's, this is the first time he's done Stories of the Supernatural. His name is Kadrick Olson, and he's an internationally renowned, renowned author, speaker, and teacher who specializes in runes, Norse mysticism, pagan men's spirituality, and resolving paranormal problems. Uh, he's an ardent student of Old Norse literature and spirituality, concentrating upon the runes and magical practices. These studies helped him to uncover secrets lying at the heart of Norse mysticism, which directly correlate to modern understandings of the psyche and behavior. He's also the author of Runes for Transformation, Using Ancient Symbols to Change Your Life. Help me welcome him. How are you doing today, Kadrick? I'm doing really great. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this today. Thank oh, you. On the contrary, it's my pleasure. Let me ask you, did your interest in runes and in North Missile, was this from youth or how did you get interested in this area? Oh, yeah. It was from, uh, I would say, before I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Because in the basement I grew up in, my, my, my parents' house, there were a ton of books. It was a veritable library in the basement. And my room was in the basement. So I had access to encyclopedias, books on magic, anything that I wanted to have. I could read about lots of books. And one of the books I really was fascinated by was secret teachings of all ages because it talks about the secrets of all of these different secret orders, you know, the different mystical groups, everything from the Eleusinian mysteries and the Egyptians to Masons and the Rosicrucians were in this book. And they talked about the Odinic Brotherhood and the rights of the Odin people. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. At the same time, I had picked up a book of runes by Ralph Blum. Yes, I was I'm listening to some yes. crazy music called from a band called Sabbat from uh, England that was talking about Norse practices. I was reading a book called The Way of Weird by Brian Bates about the Norse, and it all just like converged at once. And I said, "Okay, this is the path I want to study." And my parents were cool about it. You know, I went to a okay. spiritualist church as a kid, but my mom would go to the the metaphysical bookstore that was near her work down in Denver, get me any herbs or any sort of magical tool I wanted needed for the work I was doing. So she let me explore and I dove into the Norse. I dove into the runes. I dove into what the Norse culture was, the language, all that I could learn about it. And I've been doing that for over 30 years now. Yeah. It's incredible how when something calls to you. And the thing is that a lot of these mystery schools of the 1900s were built on, you know, more ancient religious practices such as the Nordic and all these other things. Uh, you know, and a lot of times you have to really dig deep to realize, well, this is really the root of this belief or they, you know, or they kind of like clumped them together. Um, but, and this is, uh, did you, let me ask you something, I don't, whether because of your background or because you started studying, did you learn how to basically um, speak in that language of, of what is it, the Norse or anything like I'm, that? I have to admit, I'm very terrible at speaking it and I'm <laughs> even worse at hearing it. Okay. But if I sit down with like the Poetic Edda, which is all 
old Norse poetry. Mm-hmm. I can stumble and bash my way through it and translating okay. it. And I'll usually grab a, a dictionary and alternate translations of it so I can get my way through some of these weird words that are in there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm not perfect. There's there's no way I'm fluent or even proficient at it. But okay. I can sit down and bash my way through a poem and translate it. Let me tell you something. That's admirable because... Let me tell you something. Some of those old poems, even in English, you look, read them and you're like, you got to be kidding. You know, it's they're very difficult to follow just because... The way they're written and, and, you know, and things like that and the expressions that are used, it's like, ooh. and so, you know, and the, and the reason why I'm asking you is that sometimes people get interested in things when they're teenagers and then it, they slowly slip away, you know, you kind of like put them in the, and you, and it's obvious you didn't do that. Um, what happened? Did you start using the runes for, uh, for what, practicing with them? Or did you find a group that worked with that? How, how did you grow in that? In other words? Yeah, I actually started off using runes as a divination tool because that's what I thought they were. That's what runes were in the 1980s, right? It was just Mm -hmm. a divination tool. And the more I dug deeper into the culture, the more I dug deeper into the history, I found there was modern version of the old religious practice being practiced today. That time it was called Asatru. Over the years, it's picked up other names, you know, heathenry, fornsaid, all of these different names that, that go with it, and they're all valid. And when I went through college, I, I basically went through a dry period of spirituality because I was just focusing on college. I was doing two internships and a full-time job, getting two to three hours of sleep at night, so there oh, wasn't much time for spiritual practice. And I, I got out of college. I got my degree. I'm like, okay, I need to get back into this, and I know the Norse is the path that I want to go on. And I found a local group of Asatru that were practicing. And I remember the night before I was going that I was just like begging, whatever's out there, please don't let these be role players. Please don't. (laughs) And they're LARPing. Before the word LARPing was a big deal. But yeah. Exactly. I was just like, please, please don't. But when I got there and I met with people, we were able to actually have intellectual discussions about the lore. We were able to talk about the practices and the methods we were using. And I'm like, okay, this Uh is good. This is where I belong. And I was doing that for the longest time. And because of my in-depth study, I rose, well, there's no ranks, but you know, I rose up to prominence pretty quickly because of my studies and the, the mentality that I have on it. Mm-hmm. Is that great? We can study the lore, we can study the history, but it's useless unless we can actually make it practical and we can use it today. And so right. I would read the lore with the emphasis on what can we do right now with it? How can we use this right now? And that's been the basis of my teachings for the past decades is like, here's what the lore says, and here's where the lore is incomplete. You know, here's where right. the history doesn't fill in the blanks, but mm-hmm. here are the practices that we know that works. And so we can pair what we understand with the lore with the practices that we know that works to have something that is a viable solution that works with us today. And that's been the basis of my teachings for the Norse stuff for a long time now. Let me ask you, because a lot of people, when they think of that, they they, they equate it to very warlike, which, and I understand what you're saying, you know, our lifestyle now is very different, perhaps to the origins of it and otherwise and, and and i guess in other words i don't know the norse they weren't constantly warring i mean there was there's a had to be a complete life you know cycle in the sense of living in a village living with others that you weren't warring with um it's in other words they practice this 
throughout whatever it was that was happening in their life. You're absolutely right. That's very good insight to that because no civilization can ever thrive if it is completely warlike. Mm-hmm. And in a weird sense, the Norse are responsible for their own bad image that we have today because they were a very much an oral tradition. They would sit around the fire at night and tell stories about each other. And those stories that were eventually written down had become these grossly exaggerated tales. Think of it like a Rambo movie of today, you know, where there's one man with a machine gun and there's 20 people shooting at him and he never takes a single bullet, but yet he can kill all of the bad guys with no problem. Well, the Norse exaggerated their own tales. So they, they did that. And then at the same time, when they went across the country, when they went to other lands, yes, there was some raiding. There was definitely a lot more trading going on. But in a lot of cases, history was written by the sore losers because the Norse really didn't document it. They didn't leave it in place. So when the Norse raided Lindisfarne Monastery on Easter, sure, they raided. Sure, they took the gold and all the good stuff. And I'm sure there was some killing going on. Absolutely. But, you know, these monks at the monastery had to write home to the home office about what happened, and they certainly exaggerated how terrible and how awful they were. Now we fast forward a thousand years, and the TV shows and the movies get a hold of this, and they go, oh, look, they were this completely warlike culture of these grubby people that just only killed and just were terrible and awful. And it's like, no, we have to take a deeper dive into history to really see that what the culture was, and sure, at that time period in the world, most yes. cultures were warlike. Most cultures were brutal. Absolutely. That was necessary for survival at that time. But the Norse, they dressed in finery. They had these nice shirts. They wore glass beads. They combed their hair. They bathed regularly. They looked like dandies. You know, they always were dressed up in all of their highest finery. Women always had a lot of jewelry and a lot of uh what are the accents a lot of the you know extra little things that they wear just so that it would show off their status Mm -hmm. and it was a completely different world then of what they looked like and how they acted than what we see in tv and movies today it's it's completely fictionalized history i'm sure and um yeah and and i've read in some articles which of course that they they were they were doing a lot of trading as far as into the east into yep. Russia, and especially if there was a town that was like a crossroads, Silk Road, because they have found artifacts that show that they were trading. You know, in other words, people were coming and there was a coming and going. It wasn't strictly like stuff that they brought back from raids. This there was a there was a trading going on. Oh, exactly. There are graves that have Buddha statues in it. Mm-hmm. Graves that have money and goods from the Middle East. And we know, like you said, they were all the way out into Russia, you know, settling, not conquering, but settling and living there. They they just went all over the world. It's it's kind of funny today. One of the most prominent spices in Swedish bakery is cardamom. Mm -hmm. And it's been that way for a very long time. And that cardamom can only come from the Far East. So even today in modern Swedish baking and modern Swedish culture, we see the old Norse ties to how much they just loved exploring the world, how much they loved embracing other cultures. 
and were just really fascinated by people of different lands and the different things that they had to bring to the world. And it, it's very true. When we look at the history and we look in the actual documentation, the Old Norse culture embraced diversity. They loved all these different cultures. Right. It, it, I, I've never... I've never come across um, anything where they were, how can I say it, where they were kind of, um, what can I say, they tolerated, as you know, as long as they got, they were tolerant, let's say, of other religions or anything else. They were like, you know, just, yeah. just give us the booty, you know, give us the goods, give us the treasure, <laughs> or, you know, whatever. It's like, we're good. Um, they were, they seemed to be more free spirited in that sense. Exactly. Right? Uh, and, and I think sometimes also what you were describing absolutely in that time period Life was brutal, and I think a lot of it was like a, a, a psych. When you psych out your enemies, you know how the Mongols had this terrible reputation that cities would just surrender if they knew the Mongols were on their way. I think that the Vikings kind of did that a little bit on purpose, so that it was like the Vikings are coming. Don't resist them. Don't fight them. Just give them what they want because you know it's. And I think it was just a big way of psyching out your enemy. Oh, absolutely. Even Sun Tzu talked about that in the Art of War. That basically, if you can go into combat knowing your enemy, you know yourself, you know the terrain, and you have this all figured out, and you've won the hearts and minds of the locals, you've already won without a single shot being fired, without a single blow being taken. You've won the battle before there was ever won. And I'm sure they employed the same exact kind of tactics. Yeah. They, they, they understood that if you're a farmer or a villager, somebody that's not a soldier, okay, you wanted to live. You were not a, you couldn't fight. And, you know, you know, the anticipation of, you know, like, give it whatever they want. <laughs> just like before they, like, raise everything to the ground. And let me ask you, did you come across, because, you know, there's always been that, well, not speculation, because from what I believe it's accurate, that they, the Vikings were going, you know, across the ocean, the North Atlantic, mm -hmm. over to Greenland and all these other areas, including the coast of the United States, long before the Europeans, as far as Columbus did. Uh, because they have found some artifacts. And I think some of them are the, uh, with runic symbols. Is that correct? Or am, am I wrong on that? The runes in North America, I don't agree that they're, they're not, you know, the Heavener rune stone. And I forgot the name of the other one that there I've looked at those. I don't think they're real, okay. but there is a place in Newfoundland uh -huh. that's called Lanzo Meadows okay. where it is confirmed that it was a Norse settlement. We have the longhouses. We have the remains of the bog iron that they would use to repair their ships. You know, mm -hmm. the things found in the trash heaps match Old Norse culture. And that's one of the key components is archaeologists are not looking for swords and axes and shields. That actually is usually an indication of that this is bogus if they find a sword or weapons. What they want to do is find the trash. They want to look right. through the daily things to prove and Lanzo Meadows is confirmed that the Norse settled there. They lived there for a time and then they left. Now we do have two different sagas. One of being of Leif Erikson who came over from Greenland into North America. And he was talking about what the kind of the people that they encountered, what the situation was like, what life was like, and eventually why they had to leave. So we do have history and archeology span confirming that the Norse were in North America a thousand years before Columbus. I believe it. Right. They, they under, they were. And, uh, and the thing is that I think previous to this, people didn't understand how anybody could travel these distances without the, the regular nautical instruments 
that sailors are supposed to be using, you know, right. and they did, they had, they were great sailors. They were, they were excellent beyond comparison. Uh, and, you know, you think about it now, like I'm going to get in a boat with a sail and maybe oars and I'm just going to go out there and see what happens, you know, and I'm thinking, I don't think that it was by mistake, you know, or that, uh, in other words, that they were blown off course and they ended up, I think that sometimes they would do it just to see what they found. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's actually how North America was, quote unquote, discovered mm-hmm. was, uh, I forgot the name of who it was, but somebody got blown off course trying to sail from Greenland to Ireland, got blown off course, found this other land, went back to Greenland and said, hey, this is some cool stuff. And then Leif Erikson took off and said, "Ooh, let's go find this place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And let me tell you something, that's incredible because when you think about that, that took a lot of guts. I mean, I'm talking modern sensibilities, but yeah. That's incredible. Let me ask you, and I think sometimes people, was there a crossover or are they two separate things? The the religious beliefs of the North, the Runes and Druids, or do they... Now, the, the Druids back? tend to be more of a Celtic tradition, more in, the, in, in mm-hmm. the Celts, not only in England and Ireland, but also in parts of mainland Europe. You know, that's right. where there were the Gauls, G-A-U-L the Gaulish people, and even uh, Julius Caesar wrote about the Gauls in the Gaulish War. The Norse are in Scandinavian territory, in Germanic territories. In mainland, they were called the Teutons, T-E-U-T-O-Ns, they were Teutons, but they were also in Denmark, you know, Sweden, Norway, and Iceland. Interestingly enough, not Finland. Finland's its own culture, its own thing. They've got their own background, their own language. Whereas the Scandinavian culture, the Scandinavian language, the Scandinavian lore and Germanic lore all have the same roots and they all have the same kind of background. So, yeah, we're we're talking primarily Scandinavia and Germanic countries. Okay. Now, you said something really interesting. You said at the beginning, I started working with the runes for divination purposes because Mm -hmm. I thought what they were for. How did you realize they were more than that? Just by digging into it, studying the history, studying the archaeology, reading the papers by the archaeologists and the historians and the linguists about Old Norse culture. And there is absolutely nothing in the literature or the history or the archaeology to show that runes were ever used for divination. Really? Right. And people are going to argue that Tacitus, the Roman historian in his book Germania, wrote about a Germanic tribe that laid a cloth down on the ground and inscribed these symbols on these little wood chips, threw the wood chips up and let it fall down on the ground and did divination. Well, this was a territory where the Teutons and the Gauls and the Germanic people are all intermingling. We don't know if those were runes. We don't know if it wasn't a, a Celtic tribe that he was talking with. They could have been Druids and those could have been Oams. It could have been something unique to that village. Okay. And everywhere else in the lore, there's no mention of runes being used for divination. However, the lore is very specific that runes have been used for magic, you know, promoting health and wealth, sustainability of the farm. We have archaeological evidence of runes being used as magical tools and magical sayings. So we do have the history and we do have the literature, the archaeology, that runes were used for magic. But the first time that we ever found that runes were ever used for divination was that book by Ralph Blum in the 1980s. 
I know exactly what you mean. And the, and I understand why you thought that, that, oh, this is, you know, interpret, you know, the throw of the, of the runes. Let me, would you say that runes, let's say, you know how some people use symbols as sigils, mm-hmm. uh, like either on their body or in entrances or whatever. Do, do you mean it's being used that way in, in as far as the magical purpose of it or one of the methods? Yep, because every rune has a specific intention, a specific energy to it. Mm-hmm. You know, like Fehu is about money, investments, of time, effort, energy. Algus is a rune for protection, calling on higher energies to come in and to bring into the room. Dagas is about transformation, a 180-degree shift. And so when you're tapping into those energies and you're singing the names of those runes and the sounds of those runes, you are bringing that energy and intention to life to create that transformation. And so you can carve them on a little piece of wood or, you know, the old Norse would carve it on shields, on on their swords. They were shipping tags because runes are a language. It's the written language. So runes were useful for everything from the mundane, just basic communication to magical practices and transformation. Okay. Yeah, they had, they were, they're impregnated with a certain meaning just beyond, obviously, recognizing, oh, they have that meaning. Let me ask you, did you ever have along the way a spiritual moment, you know, besides learning the material and let's Mm -hmm. say what you were doing, researching history and researching, did you ever have a, a, a spiritual connection with this or moment that you had that? Normally, I would call it coming to Jesus moment, but we won't use the Jesus thing. But, you know, the, you know, the, the, well, in your case, you know what I'm talking about, right? That, that this is, this is just beyond the study of runes or the research of the history of the Norse. Did you ever have that? Yep. And it actually comes in two different ways. One, in doing my own translation, coming across words that, the historians are great. The linguists are great at doing their translations. They're awesome at it, but because they don't know the magic, they don't know the spirituality, and they admit it, they miss important things in there just because they don't know. It's not in their purview to know. And so being with my background in magic and the occult and the paranormal, I would come across these things going, oh, that's what they're doing. And at the same time, I've always had whisperers, guides, teachers, mm-hmm. and they will like, you know, like literally in the middle of the night, you know, wake me up and go, hey, check this thing out. And I'm like, no, that's bogus. No, that's just me making stuff up. And it's like, okay, whatever. And then I'll go pick up the Poetic Edda and I'll start reading through it. And I'll be like, oh, I get it. For example, right. in working with runes and trying to understand the nature of runes, we get so hung up on thinking runes are these characters that are carved you know, the little letters that are carved into wood or stone. But reading the Havamal, there's a section where Odin hangs himself on the world tree for nine nights to discover the runes. And there's this little part in there that's talking about runes that were colored by the great singer and were carved by the high holy rulers. And these are beings that exist in a time before time, in a place before there is a place. These are entities that are higher than the gods you know these are like the the big creators you know Mm -hmm. where there's just pure consciousness and the fact that it's telling us that runes were colored by the fimble thuler which means the great singer like a thuler is somebody who sings sacred songs and fimble means 
great superhuman that tells us and that told me right then and there that that come to Odin moment is <laughs> uh-huh. like, oh, runes are actually vibrations or sound and intention mixed together. Then I went back through the lore and went to do more translation of like proper pronouns. And I'm realizing there's a lot of references here to vibrations and sound that are throughout the lore and about singing the runes. And that was my initial, well, I'm, I'm just an amateur here. That's not my native language. I don't know if I'm translating this right. Then I came across the work of Maria Kvillag, who is Norwegian, who has also done this in-depth study. And she's done a lot of work saying, look, all of this stuff in the lore is sound, frequency, and vibration loaded. It's all the way through there. And so her work confirmed my studies and my work. And I'm like, yes, the Norse were very into frequency, vibration, and sound as part of their magic. Isn't that interesting? It's like, yeah, that's like, of course, you know, this is all the senses as far. That's incredible that, you know, you perceive that in other words, that is just not something that you look at in the sense of, or reading it. Let me give you another fun kind of example of this one is Baldur. One of the most beloved of the gods was killed Mm -hmm. by happenstance. There's a story, but we'll skip to that. When he was put on the funeral pyre, Odin gave Baldur a ring called Draupner that every nine nights dropped eight rings just like it so that you ended up with nine rings. And nine is a very sacred number. But as I'm going through and translating the lore, and I will do my own little sort of shamanic journeys into Helheim, the Norse underworld, and talk with Baldur and communicate with Baldur. And then he was telling me in this visitation, he's like, you know, ring means something different, right? It doesn't mean this solid circle thing it's ring like a sound and i'm like okay am i making this up or not i went back to the old norse dictionaries and i looked up the word ring which is old norse for ring and it's just like english ring it not only means the metallic circle that you wear on your finger or your arm but it also means a sound and i'm like got it so draupner is not a physical ring but it's the intonation of nine times on the ninth night. I'm like, I get it now. Right. That's incredible. And when did you start doing the the shamanic work? That's always kind of been part of it. I've always had that natural knack to go into a deep meditative state. You know, my, my mom took me to psychic development classes when I was a kid. Okay. And that included, you know, going into meditation, learning to get out of the body and have out of body experiences. And the Norse lore is actually very clear on the landscape of Helheim. It's very clear on the steps that you take to get to there. And I just put those pieces together. And now I take people on a journey to Helheim to see the sites and do the work that needs to be done. Because it's not just about looky-loo. It's about doing stuff there. And I just paired that together. And I've been doing that for a very long time as well. Okay. And this is... Have you ever come across something that... And the reason why I say this is that I, I've heard of people that are doing shamanic work that sometimes encounter stuff, if you want to call it, call it the middle plane, you know, in that area that is, in other words, that's not quite, that you have to know what you're doing, in other words, or no, or if not, you're going to run into trouble. Have you ever found yourself in that situation? I think I understand what you're asking. And if we use Old Norse symbolism, Norse tells us that there are nine worlds. 
you know, realms of the gods, realms of the giants, realms of the dwarves, elves, all of these various realms. And they are represent like different frequencies, different densities of existence that we could be on, but they are all connected by Yggdrasil, the world tree. And Yggdrasil is kind of like that middle ground. It's the in-between worlds. Mm-hmm. It serves kind of like a conduit that you can get back and forth. And that's why Odin hung himself on Yggdrasil, the world tree, is because he was in that liminal state in between worlds where he could see that actuality that existed outside of all of those different densities. And if I'm understanding the question right, yeah, I you're, think you're that's what we're talking about. That's what Yggdrasil is. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a place where things exist there that you're not going to find on this plane, as in the physical Okay, but you have to go through it to get where you're going. Yep. And if you don't know what you're doing, you could bump into things, I guess, in a metaphysical sense that you might not be prepared to handle. Depends. In other words, that's why I asked you when did you start doing the shamanic work? Because you have to know what you're doing. Because sometimes you could get yourself into a spot of trouble if if you don't. Um, I've always had a guy that can show me where to go and and what to do and what to stay away from and the questions to ask. I've always had, it's the whispers. They've always been there to show me these things. So they're plural, huh? More than one? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Many. And they've all interchanged throughout the years. I don't have the same today that I had back in elementary school. They're all, they're all different. Back in elementary school. Oh yeah. I remember playing on the playground, talking to spirits. It's been a normal (laughs) part of my entire existence. What did that do for your reputation with your schoolmates? Oh, I was the weirdo. I was the freak. (laughs) You know, by the time I got to junior high, I embraced it. You know, I I was embracing my goth side. You know, I started dressing Mm -hmm. in black, listening to the weird music. And I just kind of like I had to just pull myself out of from the rest of the school culture just because we're talking the 80s. The idea of meditation was a normal thing for me was laughed at by the kids, you know, dealing with spirits. Because I grew up in a very haunted house where things would move, TV channels would change. I grew up that way. I couldn't talk about that with any of my anybody at school. Now, my friends, of course, they kind of poo-pooed it at first until they came over to my house, and they're like, what the? And I'm like, yeah, this stuff is real, right? It's everywhere. And And it sounds also um, like your parents were okay. In other words, they didn't shut you down. No, they were just the opposite. When we were trying to figure out what was going on in the house and all of this stuff, my parents went to a spiritualist church, which is your typical Protestant church, mm-hmm. but it had trans-channeling, trans-mediumship. We had okay. seances every Saturday night in the church basement. Yeah. And like I said, my parents took me to spirit, to psychic development courses. So I literally grew up. Let me ask you, did they ever have, and I've gone to Lilydale in here in Florida. We have Casadega. They're both two spiritualist camps. Um, let me ask you, did they, did you guys ever resolve what was going on or did you just like, let it be like, let it run its course? It's still there. (laughs) My kids grew up with, not in that house, but you know, they grew up with it telling me about the lady who comes into the room to see when they go to sleep at night and how they're talking to the spirits. And my, my oldest was doing basically Reiki spiritual healing Mm -hmm. when she was like seven, eight years old, just no training. She just right. knew it because the spirits were teaching her how to do it. Okay. So she could do it at a very young age. It's just, it's been a normal part of my existence literally since before I was born. That's incredible. And you know what? I'm going to say that's the, the attitude 
um, you know, because I've spoken to a, many people who have had childhood experiences with hauntings, and some of them have been petrified, absolutely mm -hmm. petrified. And I th a lot of it has to do also with, you know, what they're they're taught to expect from it, or knowing that their parents, you know, this was something that was supposed to be avoided. But it sounds like you didn't. That's not what happened with you. It was like, okay, this happens. Well, let me give you a fun case example out of this one. For me, I grew up with it. It was natural, normal to me. I was curious. I was interacting with spirits. My sister, who was seven years older than I am, grew up in the same exact house, experienced the same things. And to this day, she is petrified. She wants nothing to do with it. My mom, who is in her late 90s, still lives in that house. My sister told me the other day, you know, when mom dies and it's our responsibility to clean out the house, you get the basement because <laughs> I'm afraid of the basement. And I'm like, oh, my God, another why? basement. Of, what is yeah. it with the basements? Yeah, that's I mean, that was where I grew up as a kid. That was where my room was. So and... how oh, you were in the basement, of course. And yep. the reason why is that every time I speak to everybody else that they've told me about a haunted location. But the worst always is the basement. <laughs> it's like. In, in truth, this house was everywhere. You know, the radio was upstairs and it would go off, turn on in the middle of the night upstairs, the TV upstairs. You could see the knobs dialing. My mm -hmm. dad would tell me when he's taking a bath in the bathroom upstairs, he could hear boot stomps going up and down the hallway right outside the bathroom. So why my sister singled out the basement, I, I don't know. Cause Did it you was guys ever know the history of the house? It was built on farmland. My parents had okay. it built in 1964, and they are the first and only occupants while well, my dad's dead. But my, they're the only occupants of the house. And the best we could figure out is because this is old farmland that maybe this is farmers and people who worked on the farm just kind of still hanging out in that territory yeah. trying to go, what is all this weird stuff here? Sure. Yes. And I tell people a lot of times, besides the what you said, the farm farmland, you know, I said sometimes people would have either family or unofficial graves, graveyards up in places that were never registered in the county because it was just maybe a group of families in the area that were using it. So there's no, it's not recognized, in other words. And, of course, yeah. a lot of times these markers are made of wood, time passes, and it's, you know, nobody knows or remembers or it's registered. And then that's sometimes when you get people that build brand new houses and then things like that happen what you're describing it could have it been is, uh it is a very interesting neighborhood because that is exactly it we don't know if it was a graveyard but the other thing that's about this neighborhood that's fascinating is there's a preponderance of shadow people throughout the whole neighborhood oh, really? you see them you're driving see? down the street and there's somebody off to the side of the road and you go to look at them directly and they're gone even people who don't believe in ghosts would come over you know, they're like, flat out, there is no paranormal. But they will tell me that they keep seeing people off to the side of the road. And then they go to look and they're gone. And like, they're, what's up with that? And I'm like, yeah, it's just a shadow. So, and are we talking, here. what is it, a one block area, two blocks? How big an area are we talking about? Oh, it's, uh, it's a, a good size neighborhood. But it's the whole okay. neighborhood, you know. You'd be driving oh. down Claude Court, one of the main streets through. And you have to go probably a dozen streets to get to my street. Mm -hmm. And definitely shadow people the whole way. It's normal yeah. for that area. I wouldn't be surprised if that's that's the origin of it. it. I mean, a lot of things. It could be a lot of things. It, 
you could even go back and say once upon a time Native Americans used it as a campground. You know, you know how they would migrate and move and yep. maybe they would come there at a certain time of the year and this was their camp for many, many, many years. And by this what I'm trying to say is not that it was a burial ground because all of a sudden everything is an Indian burial ground. But maybe this is a site that they used year after year after year at a certain time of year. If they were, I don't know, uh, you know, what, what tribes were in your area, but you know, some of them would migrate and move around. Um, and sometimes that happens. You get that residual, you know, feeling and that of use in an area. I can confirm that there, there's when I was a kid, you know, even in high school, my friends and I would go roam around the back fields out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And there's a place called Stonehawker park. And sure enough, you know, it's like basically a deserted field, but I picked up on residual energy of some bad stuff happening there involving Native Americans and things going down. So I can definitely confirm in that area I picked up on residual energy of Natives for sure. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of these places like what you were describing as far as where you find proof is in the middens, in the trash heaps, sometimes of these locations is where you find, you know, what, who or was living there for a period of time. Not necessarily that was a burial ground, in other words. Right. But yeah, that that's so interesting. I, I, I think sometimes people don't realize when they talk about haunted or the paranormal that it's just not your typical structure. It could be the land, what was on the land, who lived there, who came and went. It, you know, it could have been a place for ceremonies, for all you know. It could have been a sacred spot. That people right. came to at certain times of the years to do ceremony. It could be a million things as to why maybe in that area you got your shadow people and all these things going on in a yep. supposedly it, brand new house. As you know, with your parents. Own, it could even be our own collective belief creating sure. the stuff, putting the energy patterns out there, drawing stuff to it. But you're right. There's now a that you brought that up, that, I'm yep. going to ask you, is there anything in, in this belief system? I don't know if you're familiar with a tulpa which mm-hmm. is the thought form? Very, yep. Okay, is what what do you think about that as far as uh Yeah. And and, and I want to explain for anybody that doesn't know what a tulpa or if you could would go ahead and explain what a tulpa is even though you might have a different name for it. Sure, in fact, there is a whole category of created entities. I've got on my website or even on kedrick.teachable.com, I've got an online course for getting to know your spiritual neighbors, you know. I call it your your field guide to subtle beings and astral entities. And I have a whole section on created entities from thought forms, which are these little balls of energy programmed with a single emotion or a single thought, you know, like scare mm-hmm. me or antagonize me, those kind of things. Yes. To servitors, which are entities created in a ritual setting to go out with a specific purpose to tulpas, which are still a created, an intentionally created entity, but it can have its own sapience, its own sentience to it. It has its own purpose for existence, where like a, a, a servitor goes out and fulfills a function and it's done. A tu- and I'll give an example of that. You can create a servitor to go out and find a rare book. And once it finds it, it tells you where that book is. You go get that book, you're done. The servitor is gone. But a tulpa would be the spirit that's guarding a library full of rare books. And it's very interested in curating and bringing more books into there and continuing the life of that library. And so we would create that tulpa as a means of all of this. And tulpas come in, 
as many flavors as humans are. They're good ones or negative ones or bad ones, whatever. Another type of created entity is an egregore okay. that is created from our cultural beliefs. Like if we all tell stories of the same thing, and I tell different versions of this, but Santa Claus is an egregore oh. because we all tell stories of Santa Claus and we've created this entity that visits everybody around the world in one you know what? night. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> you, you know, know what? That is incredible. Happening. Right. You, you know it's happening because you have that sense of reverence, that I had never generosity thought of it that way. Peace. That's Santa Claus. It's not some dude coming down the chimney. Yeah. It's this entity that we embrace and we accept into our world. And that's an egregore. And egregores come in as many flavors as there are gods and angels and demons, mysterious locations, you know, like abandoned asylums and old hospitals, any apartment buildings where there's bad things that were going down. You know, the Amityville Horror House mm -hmm. is an egregore. Because if we really look into the history of the Amityville Horror House, yes, there was murders that happened there. Yes. But there was nothing paranormal happened. That was completely made no, up. No, it wasn't. It was, it, the, 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 it was, yeah, it was just a normal house. and Right. But our continuous tales and our belief of that sure. will create that egregore. And now there can be because we're creating that egregore. So those are the multiple flavors. And there's more. But there are multiple flavors of created entities that we will experience and if you don't know the difference, somebody could go, oh, there's a demon in my house when it's really just a thought form, just being a bugger right. or, you know, there's this demon possessing this location. It's like, well, it's just an accumulation of our created beliefs, creating this entity. And when you understand that, you'll know how to work with them. And then you can circumvent the quote unquote evil so that it doesn't bother you. And you can now coexist with it in a much more peaceful way. Well, the first time I had heard of a tulpa, I had read this book about this lady. Her name was Alexandra David Neal. And she, she was, she, she, she was way ahead of her time. But anyway, back at the end of the, of the 20th century into the early 1900s, she went into Tibet, which at that time was forbidden. You could not go yes. into Tibet. And she disguised herself <laughs> with a Sherpa and went in there. And she even studied with some other monks. And in part of the book, she describes how in her mind, she, they had told her, the monks had told her about a tulpa. Mm -hmm. So she set out to see if it was real. And she says that she imagined like a, a monk and she described him, you know, chubby. You know, he, she gave him a personality. Well, not a personality, but a characteristics and how he looked. And she said she concentrated on it and concentrated on it and concentrated on it. And then she describes how eventually she it, she started losing control of it. Where all of a sudden, she would be seeing it. Let's say she would come back to camp, and here it is standing by the table, you know? And it was becoming more fully formed. And towards the end, uh, she says it was becoming, like, a little bit malicious. Plus, it was, like, trying to break away. In other words, it was becoming its own. And she had to really concentrate on dispelling it. Um, as far as that... Uh, th that, in other words, it just wasn't the intention of, let's say, a certain thing. It was... a with a personality in other words, or that yep. it looked a certain way. Yep. And, and of course that take, I'm sure that takes a lot of, you know, concentration and somebody that knows what they're doing. Yes. But that's why I do believe whether you want to call it that or negative thought forms, you know, somebody that obsesses, let's say somebody obsesses that you, let's say you have this really nice car. <laughs> I'm just going to give an example. And for some reason they just don't like you or a neighbor that wants you to move. And if one of these obsessive personalities that they just sit there and just like, eh, 
I do think that that will manifest on the physical plane. Absolutely. Yeah. And people say, huh? Yeah. No, nope, I do you're believe absolutely that. Right. And the story that you're talking about, absolutely. That's where we get tulpas from. The idea of what tulpas are and how we create them and use them is a Tibetan form of magic. Right. Absolutely. And what you described is absolutely correct. If you are creating a tulpa correctly, it will become its own independent entity. It wants its independence. It wants to be free just like we are, and they should be allowed to be free. And if we're trying to control it and confine it, of course it's going to rebel. Of course it's going to push back because we would too. And it sounds like what you were describing is she created a tulpa with the idea that she would be more like a servitor. Because like I said, a servitor. Right. I think she, you know, when something works too well beyond what you expected. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she says that. And she, well, she describes in the book how it first of it started appearing wherever it wanted to, mm-hmm. and it took out on its own personality, became kind of malicious, and basically it was gonna do whatever it wanted. And she was like, "Oh no, no, wait!" Before you just want to allow tulpas to have a little bit of freedom. Absolutely, you do want to be able to connect with them and work with them, but it's not like with a with a servitor. It is like a hierarchical thing. You need to be the dominant one working right. with a servitor. But when you're working with a tulpa, it becomes more of a horizontal relationship. Mm -hmm. Yes, you are the creator. You are the originator of it. But it becomes its own being. And if you start to try to control it and dominate it, you're going to run into problems. But if you can work with it with respect and dignity and care and compassion like you would any other sovereign, sapient, sentient creature, then you're going to have a great relationship with it. And you're going to get along with it really well. Let me ask you, do you think anybody that, how can I say that their personality is maybe not that dominant or they're lonely and they create a tulpa that they could get themselves in trouble? Yeah, that can happen. Absolutely. We create these thought forms and these type of entities all the time. And, you know, we are powerfully creative beings, human beings. We create and we create through observation. And when we observe, you know, when you see that tulpa, you see that entity. Now, you know, it's real and you've just created even more. You've, you've concretized its existence. And so if, and this happens, this will happen. And I'll give you, I'm going to piece together different client stories to tell the story because I'm really big on. Uh, protecting confidentiality with my client. Sure, I understand. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, there's some people out there that work with the paranormal that'll write books about it, tell everybody's story, but I'm like, I'm going to keep it low key and let these people be yeah. quiet. But let's put PCs together. A person's at home late at night by themselves. They've got a dog, sure, but they start to see the dog's toy roll across the floor. And the dog is not even in the room. The dog was nowhere nearby. And now everything they saw on TV, everything they heard, saw in the movies, everything they heard in church and the kids talking in school and all the stories growing up. Oh, my God, there's a demon in the house. Yeah, it's not even a ghost, it's a demon. No, there's a demon in the house because that's the only thing it is. You know, there's these people that will out there going, no, that's not your grandfather trying to talk to you. That's a demon in disguise trying to stop it. And so now they know this is a demon in the house. Now every little bump that they hear, every time the house is settling, if there's an electrical problem, you know, the electrical wiring is a little bit off and the lights flicker or the light bulb is about ready to go dead, the lights are flickering, it's the demon and they're generating this fear. They're building up this ball of fear 
And that ball of fear will manifest as a negative entity and it will provoke them with fear. It will encourage them to use their telekinetic abilities because this is where we get the poltergeist territory. Mm -hmm. It will encourage them to create the poltergeist effect to really reinforce the fear in this fear state. So now this person has a poltergeist effect going on. It's got this thought form provoking their fear. Meanwhile, how do we know that there wasn't like a little kid saying, oh, cool, here's a ball. And now you've got this little kid that's scared to death of all of this negative crap that this person has built up because now they know there's a demon in the house and they're generating this demonic entity for themselves that they're creating it. And now what do we do? Well, that's where I come in. And that's a lot of the work that I do to teach people is in a situation like this, I've had a lot, a lot, a lot of success with what I call the compassion shift. Okay. And what I mean by the compassion shift is when you see that ball roll across the floor, people are going to go, oh my God, there's a demon here. What are you going to do to me? Well, the compassion shift is instead you go, oh, is there somebody here? Do you need help? Is there a way I can help you? That instantly shifts the dynamic of the relationship going on. Even if you've got the thought form, even if you've got the negative entity, you've got the poltergeist effect going on, you see this stuff happening, but you can still stop and go, does somebody need help? Is there something I can do to help? And then you just quietly listen. And if you feel the fear and you feel the negativity, you've got some negative stuff going on, you just push it away. You're just like, nope, I'm not dealing with this. And you look for the compassion. You look for like, yeah, I'm kind of lost. Do you know where I'm at? Then the relationship changes. All of this negativity starves off because you're not generating that fear anymore. And now you can actually have a great relationship with the spirit that's in the house because you changed your attitude to what was going on. Have you ever come across a non-human entity whenever we're working with a, with anybody? Oh, a what kind of entity? A non-human, as in... Oh, yeah. And I'm not going to use a demon word because I think that's a loaded word because there's a lot of other entities out there that are not demons per se, but they're not human either. Oh, sure. Uh, I, w- I would say just about every week, multiple <laughs> okay. times a week. I work with clients a lot. Right now, Zoom has been a boon for my business. I work with clients... Okay all the time. And when I'm working with clients, guides will come in and other entities will come in that they're working with. Mm -hmm. And I will say most of the time, the guides are not human. Most of the time, the entities that they're with are not human. I'll I'll give you kind of sort of examples that have happened when people have come to me on a Zoom call Mm -hmm. and they're telling me that there's some wonky stuff going on in the house. Things are going missing. They're hearing doors creak open. I didn't believe this was possible until I started doing the zoom calls, but I can actually go into their house and I'll tell them what their house is looking like. I'll tell them, you know, there's this cupboard in the hallway that there's this little Harry Potter closet under the stairs. You know, I'll, I'll tell them what's going on or there's this crawl space under the house and they'll confirm. And I'm like, yep, yep, yep. And in a lot of these cases, it's either a house spirit or a nature spirit. Like I'll, there was a lady who was, this isn't violating any confidentiality because there's three different cases. A lady telling me there's stuff going on in the house and I'm checking out the house going through. And I'm like, did you recently move something in the backyard? And they're like, yes, I did this and that to the backyard. I'm like, oh, that was somebody living there, you know? And now they're in your house because you messed with their house. They're messing with you in your house. So what you need to do is go do a mea culpa, say, I'm sorry, give a little bit of offering, set up a an altar, recognize that you did this and we'll try to check in and see what we need to do to rectify it. Sometimes it means moving that thing back 
To which they're like, really? And I'm like, yes, let's do it. But they've all reported after they've done that. It's like the stuff has stopped. Okay. So I've worked with all sorts of entities from nature spirits to created entities to higher level beings that came across looking scary because they're not human, but they're in the few times that I have encountered scary things were actually generated by the individuals. And I taught them how to do some clearing, how to clear out the place, how to shift their own energy states and their own own emotions and their own attitudes to it. And that's cleared it up every single time. And you know, it's really funny that you say that because when I was doing, you know, the paranormal investigations, I've done it since the 1990s. In South Florida, a lot of times people dig wells, not the kind of well that you see like out in the field, but let's say people would use it for irrigation, you know, the sprinkler systems. Usually you would do it close to the house and then you'd put a pump on it. A good majority of time, the one room in the house that would have the most activity was the one that was right next to where the well had been dug. Of course, you know what I'm saying? It was like, it didn't fail. It was like, yeah, you had stuff, but this was like this one room, like let's say if they put it in the corner of the house, you know, up against the wall, that one room, that was the hot spot. And let's actually tie this Interestingly enough, we're going to tie this right back to the Norse. In Iceland, okay. they the people in Iceland are very, very careful about their interactions with the Huldafolk, the hidden people. They okay. know there are spirits of the land. They know they share this space with spiritual beings. And there are actual industries. There are actually people who are paid. Like if the government wants to build a road, they hire these people to see if there are fairy mounds, if there are hidden people living in certain places and you will actually see a roadway go around a hill or go around a rock because there are people living there and we're not going to mess with it. And if they do have to do it, they'll do some offerings. They'll do some, some gifts and saying, Hey, can we do this? They'll do some direct interaction with it. And it's the same thing here. If you've got some natural features in your backyard, you want to dig the well, it's okay to do that, but just, check in with the spirits of the land say hey i need to do this can we do this with respect can we do this with a mutual connection like you're my neighbor how do we coexist since we're sharing space together and make an offering make some sort of a gift and say this is cool can we do this then if you do that and you dig that well you're not going to have that problem now because you haven't pissed off somebody and a lot of people don't ever think to go back to that point of origin when things start to happen, which sometimes this happens on a slow, it's very slow to yeah. ever think, okay, it coincides with the well thing. You know, they just, they blow past that. They don't understand that that's really where it is. And, and in some cases, it's really funny. The house is new, you yeah. know, so they find themselves and they say, nobody's lived here. I'm the first one here. Why well, I can't understand why this is happening. And it'd be like, okay, you know, so the land, it's not only that, it's like you said, whether, I don't know if you want to call them elementals or, you know, whatever is there, mm-hmm. which, you know, basically I tell them, you know, just do a parallel, leave them alone and they'll leave you alone kind of deal. Because, yep. um, they, and I think that sometimes people have a hard time understanding that there's entities, if you want to call them that, that don't have, I'm going to use the, the word moral compass as humans, Correct. but I don't mean it in a negative way. Right. You understand what I'm saying? Bad, I good. Do. Yep, they have their own sense of what is right or wrong, their own purpose. Uh, I kind of give an example of this. In the Norse tradition, we have what are called Jotun, which is a a nature giant. It's a giant that exists in the natural world. You know, these are the things that when you go climb a mountain and you say, I touched God or I was with God, 
Well, it's the Jotun. It's that giant. And they don't care about our own human. Yes. If you're going to go climb Mount Everest and you don't have the proper gear, the Jotun of that mountain is going to kill you. It's like, cause you were dumb. You came yeah. up here unprepared. There is a certain type of Jotun that is really, that comes out in storms. It's really, really genius. It's brilliant at balancing air pressures. It okay. knows how to balance air pressures very well. It doesn't know what a house is. So okay. when it creates a swirling vortex that we call a tornado to balance mm-hmm. air pressures, it doesn't know that your house is in the way. It doesn't know what a house is. It just right. knows that it has to balance that air pressure. And if it goes and runs over your house, it's like, what are you talking about? It's in the way. <laughs> they, right. And, but see, and, and, and I understand what you're saying. It's not doing it in a malicious sense of I'm going to destroy your home. Right. It's just doing its thing. Right. And from our human perspective, we're going to go, oh, my God. It's... I'll give you another example of this one. There's a great line that I use all the time from Doctor Who, that evil is just a matter of which side of the fork you're on. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And you're so right. when we're working with like a thought form, it's not mm-hmm. that it's evil. It's just living off of your fear energy. And so it's going to poke you with fear energy to, to build that homogenous energy within you. And once it gets fed, it'll leave you alone until you start to shift your energy and then you poison it and it leaves. And kind of another way to think of this is a fox can go out and kill a mama rabbit mm-hmm. and bring that mama rabbit home. Well, to those baby bunnies, that fox is pure evil. Sure. But to the baby foxes in the fox den, that mama fox is an angel. Exactly. Exactly. And, and and tell people, you know, when you see these uh these shows where you see the lion killing the gazelle, you know, mm-hmm. the the lion is not evil. It's just doing what it needs to do to survive and and of course the balance of nature and all that that. But there's no evil or or maliciousness or none, none of that sometimes that we put as human beings on exactly. actions or motivations. Sometimes we have a hard time. But one of the things and I don't know, you tell me what you think I find that sometimes people get themselves in a jam with some of these um, non-human, whatever they are, and they want to try to do like the, the let's bargain. And a lot of these beings are not interested in bargaining. You understand what I'm saying? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, let's trade. You know, you know that Faustian thing, I'll give you my soul. It's like, you know, that yeah. typical yeah. thing. Some of them, uh, if you like do the wrong thing or you insult them or something like that, that bargain thing, the way humans do might not work. You right. Know, sometimes you get get yourself into trouble with that. It, exactly, and that's why, like, if my years of studying esoteric and the occult isn't just limited to the Norse, it's just primarily there. When I look to medieval grimoires, medieval manuscripts on magic, mm-hmm. they're just horrendous. They're terrible. They're awful. Even the Icelandic grimoires on on medieval magic, and when we go to one of those in particular, like the Goetia. Or mm-hmm. the Pseudomonarchia Demonia, the, the false hierarchy of demons. Right. These 72 demons that are classical to Christian demonology were gods. They were beloved gods and beings from the Canaans, the Macedonians, the Babylonian religions, the pre-Semitic mm-hmm. religions. They were great deities. They were loved by people, not evil. But the Christian religion turned them into these evil entities. And now people see them everywhere and they're doing all of these terrible things. And the Goetia will tell you to get the circle of art, the triangle of art, that you conjure this demon into that circle and that you demand that it does for you what you want it to do, lest you give it punishments and torments. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? 
I think it's going to come out and bite you in the ass. Right. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and so I've learned over the years when I work with spirits, it's not bargaining. You mm-hmm. aren't offering to get something. Right. It's more like you get in tune to something. Like if you want some wealth and prosperity, you focus on what you already have. You right. tune into what you, you've already got for wealth, even if it's a little bit. If you want health, you turn into what your healthy states are. And now if you look to deities of like the Norse tradition, for example, if we want to go to health and well-being, there's the goddess Er, E-I-R is how, how you spell her name, pronounced Er. When you call onto her, you can sure, you can give an offering of mead and food on the altar table for that one. But you're focusing on, even if it's like your little pinky is the only mm-hmm. part of your body that isn't hurting, you're focusing on the health and well-being of that pinky saying, Thank you for my pinky not hurting. This is really awesome. And you really, that feel come over and that's where you give her your offering and say, thank you for that. I have this health and well-being that I do have. And then they hear that and they feel that and they'll send that energy back to you. It's like, oh, is that what you want? Fine. Here's more of that. Right. And so that's how we can sort of not bargain, but that's how we can express our gratitude for things to get more of that because gratitude exactly. is actually a form of being open and receptive. Whereas I think people over the years misinterpreted it because of the movies and the medieval magic and stuff is going, oh, I'm going to conjure this thing here and bid it to do my bidding. And it's like, it doesn't really work that way. You're just going to get yourself bitten in the butt. Let me ask you now that, and and I'm sure you're familiar with that movie that just came out, The Northman. Yeah. And I was reading the, uh, the I want to see it, but the reviews on it were saying that one of the good aspects of it was that they integrated a lot of the spiritual beliefs as far as the daily life mm-hmm. of the. Do you think that movie was pretty accurate the way it depicted it? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Is my girlfriend will tell you this? I cringe <laughs> when Viking <laughs> okay. movies come out. You know that Viking TV show. I absolutely cannot watch it. Oh my it god! Don't say cool. that. I fall. I oh. watched that. I watched it. <laughs> oh god! It's terrible. They just get it so bad. And so I was, I said, okay, let's watch this because, you know, I, I've always watched these things, you know, just to see what there are. So I'm like really cringing and then they're showing runes at the start of it. And I'm like, they're accurately using the runes. They're using the right runes, spelling the right words. And they start getting into the culture and everything. And I'm like, yeah, they're doing this right. right. And some of it sure is modernized for a modern taste because we need it. You know, it's modern storytelling and that's fine, but I'm watching this and I'm like, yeah, they're getting all of these things right. The little details here. And I, we haven't done it yet, but I said, okay, this is something I can watch again because I'm sure there are hidden details in here that I didn't pick up, but I was like, as much as I've been studying the Norse and as much as I cringe at Viking movies, I watched this going, holy crap. Yeah. Even like Odin showing up and the Raven showing up and the visions that he had. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. And what the lore was saying, they did a good job with that movie. Right. They were saying that from what I read was that for that, the, the religious or spiritual aspect was normally interwoven in everyday life. Yes. You know, it wasn't that one person that had a vision. It was like everybody, this was, that you lived your life that, that with omens and the spirituality part of your daily life. And that's Absolutely. what it seemed like. Yep. That was, I, I was watching that movie and I was like, wow. It was, very, I, I, you know, whether it was accurate or not, I thought it was a great movie. Yep, I agree. And you're absolutely right. 
that is why I do what I do when I told you about that I study the lore, but I mm-hmm. want it to have a practical application is because that's very evident through the sagas and the Eddas that these people lived the stuff, they breathed the stuff, they coexisted with it. Today, we have like the separation between the paranormal and the physical. Back then, they knew the supernatural was a natural part of our world. Right. They knew that they were integrated with the spirits and that they had to coexist with the spirits, be it ancestors, be it lost loved ones, nature spirits, or weird stuff that's out there that we don't have words for. They knew they had to coexist with it. And that was an integral part of their daily life, not just spiritual practice. You know, it wasn't just like go to church on Sunday and I'm good. It was living, breathing it, existing it with everything all the time. The knife that they would use to carve runes is the same knife that they would use to cut plants, the same knife they would use to cut their meat. It was, they didn't have a special knife for rune work. It was the same knife used for everything. For everything, exactly. Let me ask you, as far as the berserkers, mm. was a berserker a specific person? Was it a group of warriors? Or how did that work as far as who was a berserker? That's a very interesting question. It has multiple layers to it. In this culture, they had a way of working with everybody. It's even in the Havamal, even in the Norse poem, the sacred text, that you know, if somebody's blind, they can still do work. If they have a handicap, they can still do these things. It's talking about the advantages of everybody, even if they have some something that doesn't make them perfect. You know, all of the gods have a handicap of some sort. Odin's missing an eye. Uh, Tyr is missing a hand. Prayer is really peaceful, doesn't fight. Thor is a little more brutish. He goes out and does, you know, he acts before he can think about it. Well, when we get to the Bersarks, in Old Norse culture, there were definitely people that had PTSD or they had emotional imbalances where today they might be like over-medicated and kept down and said, nope, don't be this way. Mm -hmm. In the Norse culture, these people who, let's say, were prone to violence where they had that hair trigger to violence, they were given into that Bersark role. The Bearsark. And Bearsark. Is that the way you pronounce it? Did I just kill it by calling it? Oh, Berserker is a modern word that okay, we use for right. it. But Bearsark means okay. bear shirt, like the uh, hide of a bear, like wearing okay. a shirt of a bear. And so they were trained in a form of combat that uses shape shifting, where oh. they took on the spirit of the bear, that they would wear the bear shirt. And they would become the bear on the battlefield. So now they had a means of expressing themselves through ecstatic combat. And, you know, when we use ecstasy and magic, we can get, like, really into chanting and we get really into seething and getting into it. And ecstasy is a form of Odinic work. Odin, his name, Odin, means the ruler of madness or the ruler of ecstasy. And so when we're galdering, we're singing the runes, we're getting into an ecstatic state shape-shifting is called Hammerammer is another form of Odinic ecstatic magic, but it was used on the battlefield. And that's what Bersarks were. They were trained in a form of shape-shifting magic where they became the bear on the battlefield. Okay. An interesting another form of shape-shifting magic were called the Ulfheidner, the wolf hides. And the Ulfheidner were the same kind of people, but they really couldn't fit into society. They just mm-hmm. couldn't quite fit in. 
And so they were more roaming the forest. They were, they were more adept to guerrilla warfare, guerrilla warfare rather than head on combat. And they would wear the wolf pelts and they would take on the spirit of the wolf and they would fight like the wolf. Now the Ulf Heidner in Old Norse, but you know, wolf hides. When we get to Old English and when we get to more of the Anglo-Saxon culture, then we still have the word wolf that's in there, but then we incorporate the word for man or human, which was were. I see. And so that's where we get werewolf from. People who were trained in ecstatic magic of shape-shifting for combat situations to make use of their peculiar personality traits so that they weren't really an outcast from society. Right. Right. In in other words, they've they've found a way to fit them in. Yes. And honor them for who they really were. Right. And I, and I imagine at some point if anybody ever became dangerous and turned, they'd be like, we're getting rid of you. You know, somebody that turned on their own, but otherwise. Oh, sure. And there are some ways that you can get a bearsark out of their trance which involves either hitting them with some really cold water or getting them with a red hot firebrand. Oh, and then there's my favorite. <laughs> Suddenly show them the sight of a naked woman. That snap them right out of it, right? <laughs> be you like... got it. <laughs> well, no, because I'm thinking though, because I'm thinking, and you know, and I could really understand, you know, back, you know, in those times, yeah, asylums eventually came around, but no meds, no asylums. So how do you, you can't lose all these people. You know, just to like, okay, you're on your own. So this was a good way of keeping them close, but we're going to use your talents. Exactly. And that's the way a lot of the magic users were. They had a very loose grip on physical reality that they were able to slip into the alternate states of reality and make use of that. Today, we would call that schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorders. Mm -hmm. They knew how to use what we would call a disorder as a talent as a benefit for them so that they could become the healers. They could become the, the magic users and help the, the village and the people because of their unique abilities. Let me ask you, I've seen that the Norse, like a lot of the civilizations in the afterlife, because you see that sometimes they were buried uh, with their goods, sometimes mm-hmm. with the wife or concubine with animals, because yeah. for them, what they would continue to use these things. Yeah. That was death? the belief. That was definitely the belief was that you would be able to use these things afterward. And it always involved a journey of some kind. Right. Like the common person would have a, a new stout pair of shoes so that they could take walk on the journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who is a little more affluent would have their horse and cart. You know, there are grapevines like a, a woman who was very sacred, very well worshipped, had her, all of her accoutrement of being a sacred uh what we would call a vulva, a shamanic priestess type lady. She mm-hmm. was buried with a cart so that she had had that cart to take her to the other world. Or if they were a chieftain or if some nobility, they could have a ship that they were buried in their ship so that they took the ship. Yes, as I've heard of those burials, yeah. So they definitely always had some sort of travel tools with them to make that journey into the other world much easier for them. Right. So there was that belief in the afterlife as far as you being... And of course, and I guess that's the human idea. You know, I'm going to take it with me because I'm the other side, you know. Exactly. And and I understand that in a lot of these societies, status did have meaning as far as, you know, the quality of your life. Yes. You know, so of course you wanted to keep it when you were on the other side. 
Absolutely. And, uh, that is like, let me tell you something. That is, that is so interesting what you said about the berserkers. I, wanna, uh, I didn't know that they had the bear and the wolf and they would just, you know, I just thought that it was like certain warriors that they just trained them. You know, you're going to, you're going to go crazy when you go into war, you know, and you're going to mow, um, you're going to mow everybody down. Something like what they showed in the Northman that this is, yeah. which, that, which by the way, that scene was pretty intense. Oh, yeah. And, and here's a fun thing. There are tales of women who were also bearsarks. So it wasn't really? just men. Women could be bearsarks, too. I heard, I just read recently about an article about a tomb that they unearthed. Oh, Marlene. Was, I think, I want to say it was in Scandinavia or somewhere. It was in a town. They say she. they buried her with, uh, you know, in other words, she had swords. She was... Mm-hmm. Buried close to where there was like uh, where they kept the soldiers. They put in there a cart, you know, like a not a cart, like a chariot kind of thing with two horses. Yep. She had weapons. Yep. Okay. And the what she was wearing was not like the stuff like the housewives would wear. Okay. They say she was pretty well off because of the quality, but yep. that basically she was she was a warrior. She was buried close to where the soldiers were, where the warriors were, what she had inside. And what's really funny is. They found this back in the 1960s, and they assumed that the skeleton was a man. It was male. Right. <laughs> and later, it took them so many years to realize that really what they were looking at was a female skeleton, the remains. In fact, the, studying the remains showed it was not only a woman, but the wear and tear on her shoulder and on her body shows yes. that she trained her whole life to be a right. warrior. It wasn't yes. just like a one-off thing. That was her status in that society. Yes. Yes. Which is interesting because it kind of like goes with what you were saying that if, let's say, if you did have a woman that did want to go to war, you know, they weren't going to make her stay. You know, if you're good at it, well, we'll take you along. Exactly. Even though back then you, you look at it and um, it was very, let me ask you with the berserkers, when they mean shamanic, because in the movie, they kind of indicate like that they were being given drugs. Hallucinogenics. Mm-hmm. Is that what they would do when they would send them into war? There's a big, strong theory that may have some validity that part of their transformation rites, let's use right. those terms, either included Amanita muscaria or Liberty cap mushrooms. Okay. You know, either fly agaric or Liberty caps as a means of okay. going into an altered state. Okay. And that makes sense. That makes sense. Hey, Drake, it has been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. I've enjoyed it so much. Let me ask you, I know you just wrote that book a while back. Are you, and it sounds like you're really busy oh, yeah. on, uh, on your, you know, on working with clients, but are you planning to write anything else? I do have another book that's about 80% of the way through. Mm-hmm. I, there are circumstances in life where I had to put it on hold, but right now I am so involved with creating online courses and teaching classes and seeing clients that I don't have time to get back to the book, but maybe someday. But right now I've just got a whole bunch of online courses that I've been creating and I've got a lot more coming soon. Let me ask you, and I'm going to, before you go, Mm -hmm. I noticed that your surname is Olson. Do you think you have any genetic memories? Yeah, I'm sure it's in the, in the family line somewhere. And I do past life regressions for clients Mm -hmm. all the time. And I've done my own past life work and I've had times in the Norse past Absolutely. Okay. So it, it's definitely in in my spirituality. It's there ingrained in there for sure. That's 
I used to do hypnotherapy for very, a lot of years, and I did a lot of past life and age regression. Yep. And yeah, it's that's why I I, I can I'm not going to say because you know sometimes that's misleading, but you'd be surprised sometimes people they do have past lives within their genetic lineage, not all the time, okay, but sometimes they do. And I I took back a couple of clients that were really surprised where they found themselves when they landed as far as the past life. You know, they were very surprised. But that is so interesting. Uh, for my podcast listeners, what is your website address? It is kadrick.com okay. for the main one. And I also have kadrick.teachable.com where you can okay. find my online courses. Perfect. We If they go to kadrick.com, is there a link there by any chance to go over yep. to where you have your courses? Absolutely. There's a tab on there for training. And if okay. you click on that tab, you can see the links to go to the, the different paranormal training courses I've got online. Oh, wow. That is fabulous. That is. Let me ask you, is it only runes or when you say paranormal training, what kind of trainings do you offer besides the runes? Yep. Uh, for example, I've got a class on, like I was mentioning earlier, getting to know subtle beings and astral entities. Mm-hmm. I've got a class on developing your paranormal abilities where you can access your clairvoyance, your clairaudience, you know, your psychic senses, but bring it forward in a way that you can test and validate it and yes. put it to some really good use. I've got a powerful six-week-long course, which involves one-on-one sessions with me, that is shadow work, where we go into the deep, dark, the scary stuff of ourself, you know, the things that we mm-hmm. don't like or the things that are holding us back, and we face those together and we address those because in my years of working with people at the spiritual level, I've seen that people reach blocks all the time. And so I've developed a shadow work course to get through all of these blocks to help people find out who they are. So I've got a bunch of these kind of courses and stuff online that we can work together. Let me tell you something. People don't realize how important that shadow work is. It's hugely important. Yes. I've seen some dramatic transformations with the clients who've gone through it, like 180 degree turn. Uh, I, I, I'm going to brag a little bit, Go but ahead. I've had two clients during the course of taking this course have actually increased, if not doubled their business profits. Mm-hmm. And I have another person who is just getting job offers left and right without doing anything. Like high-end job, I've actually happened with two clients now. And by the way, that's not the purpose of the course, but right. that is just like tends to be a side effect. When you get those blocks out of the way, when you do your shadow work, your authentic self gets to shine and those things start getting drawn to you right. effortlessly, just they automatically. They start manifesting. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, to see let me happen. tell you something. And, and it's really funny because I tell, I go, one of my dead giveaways, sometimes when people have, they're, they're working, they'll laugh about it. You know, when something negative, they kind of laugh about it. Like, oh, yeah, you know, like, especially when it's something that they really don't think they have or they're, it's part of them. And they kind of laugh like, oh, you yeah. know, but it's like, yeah, I, that's one of the signs. But yes, that's very powerful because I can truly understand how that can hold you back. Um, and it's just a part of you. Absolutely. It is. It's a part of you. Thank you so much. I have absolutely loved this. And I want you to come back and uh, I'm going to send you on a, on a potential client. I'm going to send you a separate message. An email on that. I'm going to be sending somebody your way, which that that six-week course, I think, is going to be the ticket for this person. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I love helping people. Yes. I this Believe me. As a matter of fact, this person, when they became aware that I was going to interview you, they were like, oh, you got you to let me hear. You know, 
I'll send you that email. Okay. That was great. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. No. You know what? I love talking to somebody that, that, that knows his stuff. And man, he knows his stuff. He knows his stuff. You know? And in, and you know what? This proves what I've always said, which I suspect, and I think a lot of people do, that we get so sucked in by the Hollywood version of things and we take it as fact. Okay? That if it's from Hollywood, if it's in the TV, it's in the movie, it's accurate. And the truth is that a good, what, 98% of the time, uh, saying that they dramatize things, you know, is a little bit, it's being very, uh, <laughs> being very generous. They'll exaggerate things. And like he said that, you know, they want to make like the Norse, the, the Vikings and all of these were like, all they did was run around and kill people. And they don't ever look at the aspects of the trading and that, uh, that they lived. I mean, what, you were going to go a Viking, what, 100% of the day? You know? Um, and that, uh, and by the way, you know, if you if you read um, a lot of the history of whether you want to call it the, the Dark Ages or things like that, um, conquest, you know, a lot of, the, the thing about the, the Vikings is that they would, let's say, do a raid and take, bring back things, whether it was, you know people gold goods whatever but conquest and wars were they were that was done by a lot of different civilizations all over the place in some cases the 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 war the conquering thing the raiding which is what you had to do to conquer it was to, to take over pieces of land or a city okay but but in other words the vikings by no means were the only ones waging war and doing raids and stuff like that there was a lot of other uh people or countries or you know whatever they were, because remember back then, you know, that area of Europe, it was very fragmented. It's not the Europe that you see now. This was the way that, um, you know, and some of them were older, some of them were more established, um, that had done very something similar. Uh, War, you know, same thing, you know. And uh, I think that, um, and of course, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say that, and I'm sure up to a certain point, they they de- they deserve part of their um, some of the reputation. And I kid you not, back then, just like everything else, it was a big psyop. You know, you 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 scare your enemy enough beforehand that if you <clears throat> try to take over a city or a village, that they're going to go ahead and just give you what you want without fighting, and nobody loses any people, especially you. And then you get what you want, whether it's gold or anything like that. Yeah, and it's all good. Yeah, problem came when they came when they keep coming back for more stuff. But um, and uh, I think that uh, things like that, um, you know, I think it's fantastic that he had that opportunity when he was growing up. Um, how can I say this? I'm a big believer that, yes, you need to be involved in what your kids are doing and what they're learning and what they're interested in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because God knows I did it with my my children as they were growing up and going into adolescence. But I always try to keep an open mind, okay, because that that solves a lot of problems. Uh, And as long as we're not going into something dangerous, 
Okay, when we're talking, let's say here, spiritual beliefs, okay, I was pretty much open to like, if you want to learn something, you need to learn about it properly, you know, as long as it's not dangerous. And when I mean, we're talking spirituality, something dark and dangerous, all right? And of course, you know, uh, my, you know, I grew up in a, you know, my upbringing was Catholic and my kids by extension. But again, it wasn't this thing where if you, if you have questions about another religion, let's say in this case, because of, you know, he, he got interested in that. It wasn't like you shut somebody down. It's, you're better off knowing what's going on. And, and of course, like I said, you know, a lot of uh, times people like they shed what their interests were during their teenage years and then they just outgrow it and they leave it behind. And apparently he took it back up uh, and he kept going with it and he's immersed himself. You could tell by talking to him that he really knows his stuff. He really, this is not the, uh, I went to the bookstore and I got the latest, um, you know, book that was written by someone. So like he said that, that bloom book with the, with the, uh, with the runes I was very familiar. I had that. Okay, I've seen it, and it's basically it's for divination purposes, with the uh, runes kind of carved on little pieces. You know, looks real pretty, and you know, of course, they have meaning, and you know, supposedly the way it's. I've seen that. I'm very familiar, and I, I couldn't believe it. This guy made it up on the, Ralph Bloom. I think his name is B L U M. He what? He invented this on the fly. They were never meant to be for divination. Yeah, there you go. See what I mean about New Age? Some of the things they come up with were like, mm-hmm, all right. Somebody was like, I need to make some money on this, so how am I going to do that? But anyway, getting back to, uh, in other words, what I'm saying is that he didn't go by, by the popular New Ager um, version of whatever. It's, it looks like he's really done his research, deep dive research into what is the the truth or what is, what's behind that legend or the interpretation, which again, let me tell you something, you have to be really dedicated because when you start going into some of these older stories, whether they're ancient or the way that it reads can be confusing, boring, or like, oh boy, I don't understand what that means. So that shows a lot of dedication on his part. And uh, again, one of those things where, um, you know, uh, again, how can I say it? Somebody, and I'm going to go to the, the reality shows of the, you know, people that goes hunting and things like that, which I'm glad he mentioned where he said everybody, uh, right off the bat, it's a demon. You know, there's other things out there. Yeah, there is. I'm not saying that doesn't exist, but it's not as common as people think. There's the ghost. There could be a thought form. There could be negative thought forms. There could be a feeling about the place. You know, what some people call residual, but sometimes you hear people say, well, <clears throat> a residual is like a time loop. You know, maybe a certain smell at a certain time of day. Maybe they baked bread and brewed coffee really early in the morning and this was done repetitively. And then you'll have people have this experience where, hey, at a certain time at 6 a.m., I smell bread baking and coffee brewing. Okay. But there's other type of residuals. And... This will happen, let's say, if you have, let's say, a, a room that was used as a sick room, all right? And let's say uh, somebody that was very ill for X amount of time for, uh, when I say, I'm not saying a couple of weeks, maybe months, maybe even years, use this room as the sick room during a time of illness, okay? You have people later on move into this room and use it 
and they will start experiencing some of the symptoms, if not all of the symptoms. All right. And then you'll, you'll, you'll hear people, if you want to call it a haunting, it's not, it's just something that's woven into the fabric of that place. Okay. Because that person experienced uh, certain feelings, uh, thoughts. Let's let's face it. If you're somebody that is ill and you're lingering and you have a disease that's taking you slow, um, if you don't think that there's stuff going on in your head as to why me or how did this happen or I want us to end or I don't want it to, I, I mean, talk about. Because remember, once upon a time, now we we you know we have. Uh, there's a, not all the time, but there's places where either people go to nursing homes or hospices or hospitals. But once upon a time, it was more common that a person had a lingering illness that could only be treated a certain way. And it was just a question of time. Sometimes it was a t- question of time is in years. They would send these people home. All right. And you have family members take care of you. All right. And this is, again, what he's describing as whether you want to call it a thought form or a residual haunting. Uh, and it, my point being that not everything has to be an active ghost as what we think of as an, a haunting, you know, an intelligent haunting or the guy that used to live here, you know, he's, you know, over there in that room and I hear him shuffle around. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, sometimes. And and I, I'm glad he pointed out because I've said it before. There's sometimes a lot of discarnates who missed the boat on the part of I am dead, okay? One of two things. Uh, they were either, sometimes they died really, really quick, or violently, or in an accident. You know, a lot of people, but sometimes people die really quick. You know, there's people that will lay down, and they're not really sick, they're not sick, and they will have an aneurysm while they're asleep, and that next thing you know, they're dead. In other words, they die. Things of that nature. Um, or people sometimes that, let's say if you're young, if you don't expect or you refuse to, all these reasons why people or humans can't or don't want to accept that they're dead. And they kind of missed the boat. And when he said that thing about, that they want to know what happened, that he said that they're asking what happened, people don't understand that's more common than what you expect. There's no malevolence behind it. You know, it might be somebody that this is where they lived for many, many years. Or it could be a place that this is maybe not that long, but they liked it there. Or they just, like, they they lost, they didn't get the memo about the I'm dead part, the, the you're dead part. And they're just hoping that somebody, okay, is going to tell them maybe the family their family moved away. And if you read some texts, you will, you will, um, you have people that will describe that some discarnates after a time, their memory starts going wonky on them. In other words, they they forget who they were or what happened. On top of that, they're not really sure. They kind of forget who they were, what they were doing. All they do is just they exist there in this area, in this gray area, and this maybe familiar, either because of the structure or somebody that lived there that they followed home, whatever. And it almost takes a while for them to start a discourse with somebody to explain to them that maybe they're dead and, and, and then it starts coming back. All right. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of ways that that could play out, but I'm glad he mentioned that. Okay. Again, though, 
I warn you have to be really careful how you do that because sometimes people start trying to engage in too much conversation okay with something either they don't know what it is or they're not experienced in how to handle it all right um and you have to one thing is to have compassion all right and but you do have to be wary about things that do you use our human um kindness if you want to or in some cases curiosity because some people get carried away with the curiosity stuff all right and i forgot to ask him but i'm sure he would agree with me also like attracts like if you got an angry person sometimes you attract angry things sad you attract sadness or sad entities or sad thought forms or you know it's like a magnet to steel kind of thing i mean there's a whole so interesting so again i'm going to have a link to kadrick's a website on the credits of the show, but you heard where you have to go to kdrick.com, K-E-K-A-E-D-R-I-C-H.com. Check out his work. And uh, he has classes, he has services. And um, again, don't forget to go to miamighostchronicles.com. And there you can find, like I said, uh, do you want to uh, get, listen to a, one of the uh, shows, new one, uh, old one. Um, I've got links to everything. All my shows from season one, you can find video links. You can find the podcast version of it without commercial interruption. Um, I've got links there. Again, if you want to send me an email, you've got somebody that you want to have them appear uh, suggestions or somebody that you know of or you I don't care. If you, like I say, witness the unexplained, I'd love to uh, interview you. All right. Uh, you can find links there to send me an email. Uh, like I said, I'm already prepping my guest list for the beginning of 2023. Okay. That's how far in advance I prepare the, the episodes for stories of the supernatural. And again, yes, it's, you know, I'm, I like speaking to well-known people and authors and experts, but I love, I just absolutely love to talk to normal everyday people that have had weird encounters and you know whether it's a ufo or a ghost or whatever or you know if you're psychic if you've had psychic experiences all your life i'm good with that if you've got some way out conspiracy theory things going on hey i'm open to that too whatever it is shoot me an email all right and let's see if we can work something out uh, and again, no commercial interruptions, but then uh, otherwise I've got links to all the major podcast platforms. You're going to find me on all of them. Okay. And also on a, the videos across the board, not only YouTube, you're going to find me on Roku through Rumble, on Cloud Hub. I'm all over the place, guys. And uh, don't forget to visit eerie.news, eerie.news. And I put out there a new segment about just weird stuff that's going on, you know, unusual things, you know, whatever. You know, whatever makes your little weird little heart happy. All right. So till then, guys, take care. And thank you again for coming every week and spending this time with me. Till then.